And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Tara Conklin to the program today. Tara was trained and worked as a litigator here in the United States as well as in the United Kingdom. Her love of writing eventually won out, and she published her best-selling debut novel, The House Girl, in 2013. In 2019, she returned with her follow-up, The Last Romantics, which was also a bestseller and has just been published in paperback by William Morrow. Tara, your novel starts off in the year 2079, and I'll say that I wasn't expecting some speculative fiction elements when I first started off your book. Mm -hmm. So what are some of these broad strokes of the future that we're dealing with here? Well, the book opens in the future with my protagonist, Fiona Skinner, who is the youngest of four siblings. And in 2079, she's 102 years old. She is a famous poet, and she is addressing a packed auditorium. It's the first time that she's spoken in many, many years. She's notoriously reclusive. And given her age, it's likely to be the last event of her life. At this event, she is answering questions from the audience. And a young woman rises from the crowd and asks her to explain the inspiration behind her most iconic work, which is a poem called simply The Love Poem. And for Fiona, this question is one that she has been asked many times before and she has always refused to answer it. But at this occasion, on this night, she decides it's time to tell the story. And so then we go back into the past of her childhood. And she, I mean, the... The, do you mean the broad strokes of, 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 of what the what future, the future looks like? Yeah, because <laughs> we go back to that evening periodically throughout yes, the course yes. of the book, and things are not well in Yeah, our things are not well. You know, there is a crisis happening that we don't really know what exactly the crisis is. The lights go out. The audience members are kind of used to these things happening, so there's not as much confusion and hysteria as there might be. I specifically kept the details of that future world vague. I wanted it to be one evening and just to have Fiona in this kind of crisis situation where, you know, she's thinking about her life. She's thinking about what are the most important things, the most important moments in her life. And she's doing it from this future perspective. And when I wrote those future sections, it was just difficult to imagine a future that did not have some kind of climate emergency, (laughs) did not have some kind of environmental crisis happening. And so the undertones are that this is some kind of environmental crisis that's happening. Why did you choose a particular year of 2079? And why was she 102? Were there any motivations? I mean, to be honest, it was a little arbitrary. I should probably, (laughs) I should probably say there was some grand scheme. I wanted her to be elderly. I mean, I wanted her to be at the end of her life, but I also wanted it to be far enough into the future that we could really get this kind of nostalgic perspective. And she's really looking back over her life. And in doing that, I really wanted the reader to kind of have that opportunity to do the same sort of reflection that Fiona does, but you know, without being 102 years old. (laughs) So I just, I guess I was kind of pushing it to extremes a little bit in making her 102. 
also the idea that in the future, you know, medical advances have been made and she can comfortably live to 102 and still be standing in front of an audience giving coherent answers to questions, which, knock on wood, we'll both be doing when we're 102. (laughs) But the main motivation for that was to allow Fiona to really have this backwards, nostalgic, sort of taking stock of her life perspective on the story. Was it easy to stop yourself from doing the same thing while you were writing the book, or did it get caught up with each other? Oh, I definitely did the same thing. You know, I think when you're writing a book about family, it's hard not to think about your own and to go through the same kind of reflection that Fiona does. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to give the readers that opportunity, too, because I think it's important. You know, we get kind of caught up in the day-to-day And it's good to take a step back and just sort of sit and be quiet and think about what is really important. Did you ever feel kind of intimidated trying to bite off a hundred-year chunk of (laughs) a family's history? Oh, yeah. I felt really intimidated. You know, I wrote this book three times, and the first two versions were very different. There were a lot of weeks and months, and I might even say years, when I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I could, you know, create the kind of book that I wanted to create, which was this kind of this epic family drama that focused on these sibling relationships and how they changed over time. It was definitely challenging, but those are the kinds of books that I love to read. I love epic family novels, and so I just kind of kept putting my butt in the chair (laughs) in front of the laptop and Do you remember the moment when the approach kind of came to you, how it would work eventually? A little bit, yeah. I mean, in terms of the future Fiona framing, like to have Fiona 102 years old, I was somewhere in the third draft. I mean, I handed this book in twice to my editor and twice she said, "Mm, no. (laughs) I mean, she said a little bit more than that, but basically it was no. So I sort of had to go back to the drawing board. For the third version, I literally put everything else aside, and just opened a blank document and typed chapter one. It was in the final version that I really went into their childhoods in the section that is now called the pause in the novel. And as I was sort of finding these characters and really thinking about the problems that I wanted them to face, I really wanted to look at contemporary characters and contemporary women in particular. But I also wanted to do this epic kind of 100-year stretch. And those two narrative goals were really in conflict. And that was one of the main problems of my first two drafts, was that it had this kind of nostalgic tone to it, but it was women of today. It was contemporary characters with kind of contemporary problems. So it just didn't sound right. It just wasn't working. And so I remember when I had this kind of aha moment about, you know, what if Fiona was narrating from the future? And it seemed like I could have my cake and eat it too. You know, I could have this really taking stock of one's life kind of perspective, but I could also look at modern day characters and and people like me and my sisters and my friends and the kind of struggles that we all are having. Did the relationship dynamics Were they pretty consistent from each iteration, or did you come on new aspects when you you got that approach? Relationship dynamics definitely changed. The example that I give most often in terms of what changed from the first draft to the final is the character of Renee, who is the oldest sibling. 
And she sort of operates as the stand-in mother to her three younger siblings while their own mother suffers from a period of depression. And she is a real go-getter. She's a real kind of type A, a very achievement-oriented person. In the very first version of the novel that I wrote, she was not that way at all. (laughs) She was a Pilates instructor. She had a famous boyfriend, and she basically just taught Pilates classes and kind of hung out in New York, and she had no children, and she was not at all an achievement-oriented person. And in the final version, of course, she's a transplant surgeon. So her journey, I mean, the way that the journey of that character affected the relationships of all four siblings, I really felt like I had to find these people, you know? And I started this book with this idea, this kind of, oh, I want to look at, you know, siblings, and I want to look at changing relationships, I want to look at love and and family love. But I think you can start a book that way, but a character is what is at the heart of any novel and what will make it work or not work. And I really had to find these people, and it, it took me a little while, five years to be exact. <laughs> now, one of the most important characters in the book who we learn very little about is a young woman named Luna yeah. at that reading mm-hmm. early on, and she asks about the love poem because yeah. there is a woman named Luna mentioned mm-hmm. in it. That's a mystery that I hope is compelling to the readers and and sort of is a thread that runs throughout those future sections. And then it all comes together in in the last section. And we do learn finally who, who Luna is. The first Luna and the future Luna. The future Luna wore a necklace with a ring on it. And uh-huh. I noticed that you have a necklace <laughs> with a ring on it. <laughs> Well, I do. No real similarity other than, you know, rings that are important to you. You put on necklaces and wear. (laughs) But we find inspiration in different places. Yes, yes. So the Luna in question is named Luna Hernandez, and Mm -hmm. we don't learn more about her for quite some time in the novel. Yeah. And she was a character who also evolved a lot over the course of writing. I wrote a lot about her that didn't make its way into the novel. I don't know how much to give away. <laughs> it's hard to talk about Luna without yeah, like giving too much away. I don't think you should give too much away. Okay, yeah. okay. Now, the story begins in earnest. We go back to when Fiona is four years and eight months old, mm-hmm. 1981, mm-hmm. and a terrible tragedy hits the Skinner family. Yes. Their father dies. That is not a spoiler. It happens in pretty much the opening chapter of the book. Their father dies very suddenly, And of a heart attack. He's in his early 30s. Yeah. And he leaves his wife, who does not work, and their four young children. The wife, Noni, her name's Antonia, but everyone calls her Noni, including her children. Noni learns after his death that they basically have no money. And they're forced to move out of their house, and it's this period of real turmoil. We see this period from the perspective of the children. So their mother, after they move, she basically suffers a sort of mental collapse and goes into her room and emerges very infrequently for the next two or three years. And during that time, which the children later in life call the pause, during that time, they are really left to fend for themselves. And it's this period where their bonds are formed. 
and the kind of patterns in their relationships that then later play out and in their adulthood. It's interesting because each of the characters kind of looks at that period in a different way. For Fiona, who's the youngest, for her, it's like it was amazing. You know, <laughs> they were like running all over the neighborhood. She got to hang out with her brother all the time. She just sort of worships her siblings. And so she looks very fondly at the pause as being this time when they were like the four musketeers. For Renee, who's the oldest, she looks at it, she looks back on it as this time of danger and all the responsibilities uh, on her shoulders. Yes, yes. So she is more resentful of that time. It impacts her more negatively, um, I think, than it does for certainly for Fiona. Because she was 11 and she remembers it being three years. Her yeah. younger brother, Joe, who was seven at the time, remembers it being two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was a point where. I thought, you know, she was so competent in keeping the family together when their mother wasn't able to. But eventually her mother was roused to come to the fore and get mm -hmm. back back in charge of things. That if maybe if she hadn't been so competent, her mother might have had to come out of it earlier. Yeah, it's possible. It's definitely possible. I mean, I don't know. It's funny. I get, I've gotten a lot of emails and notes from people. There's a part at the end of the pause where... The mother returns, and I think she comes in and she sits down to dinner with the aunt who has come. And there is a moment when the children, when I, I think Noni says, you know, we're okay now, aren't we? We're okay. And the children all sort of look at each other, and Renee says, yes, we're okay. And the others follow. And in that moment, I think they forgive her, basically, but it's Renee who has to forgive her first because the others are so used to following her lead at that point. You know, I have had messages and emails from people saying, "How did? Why did the children forgive her? You know, it was horrible what she did, and but how could a mother, mother do that?" Yeah, I mean, to sort of abdicate your maternal responsibility in that way. I mean, the kids basically lose both their parents very suddenly. I mean, they could have held a lot of resentment and anger towards her. But I think, yeah, she's she's all they've got. And I think there's a certain level of understanding that they are okay. Renee did actually <laughs> step up and take care of them. And the neighbors did to a certain degree. The character of Noni is one that is complicated because she becomes this really staunch feminist after the pause when she kind of comes back to herself and she kind of takes control, you know, and then that her sort of very staunch feminism has different impacts on her daughters. Renee is fully on board, but Caroline kind of goes in the opposite direction and rebels against her mother by taking on a very traditional and getting married very young and having kids very young. Now, one of the most insightful in terms of character building incidents is after the funeral, young Joe, when his father dies, just goes on this violent jag at kind of the wake. Yeah, he picks up a fireplace poker and he basically destroys their house. He just takes it to lamps and walls and chairs. He doesn't hit any people. And then he specifically takes aim at all the family photographs that are sitting on the piano. And that is really sort of a symbolic scene because that scene kind of plays out in a larger way later in his life. 
And at the end of that scene, when he finally calms down, the people that calm him down are his siblings. And they all kind of run to him and and hug him. And their mother doesn't. She stays on the couch. Noni can't really deal with it. So in the book, I say, you know, this was the moment that they each took responsibility for their brother. And I think I wanted to kind of play with the idea of like love being a responsibility, that to love someone, it's what life is about, certainly, but it's also a real obligation, both to be loved and to love. And there's a lot of pain that comes along with love relationships. It's not all, you know, fairy tales and walks on the beach. <laughs> and so, you know, Fiona in the in her opening answer to Luna in the opening pages of the book, she says, this is a story about the failures of love. You know, so that scene kind of sets up what happens later in life for Joe. Because he does have these odd moments of rage a couple of times more in the book. But yeah. for the most part, he keeps it fairly well together. Yeah. And he introduces Fiona to the pond at their mm-hmm. new house they moved to. Yeah, yeah. The pond was based on a swimming hole that I used to go to when I was a kid that was in the back of our house. You know, I was a kid of the 70s when parenting was a lot a lot more lax than it is today. And um, Just a suggestion, maybe, <laughs> that's all it was. <laughs> yeah. So just go outside. Go outside and play for eight hours without cell phones or anything. And that's what we would do. My sisters and I and other neighborhood kids would go to this little swimming hole, and it was a whole world there, you know? We would play these very elaborate games for hours. And and this is one of the reasons why the pause was not all bad, because, you know, these kids really had this autonomy, and they were able to play and to really live in these imaginative worlds that they created. And they had freedom, you know, they had freedom to play and splash and get into trouble and almost kill themselves <laughs> several times. Why were the goats so important? Yeah, the goats were the siblings, were Nathan's siblings. Nathan is a boy that they meet at the pond. The Duffy family. The Duffy family, yes, Nathan Duffy. He becomes Caroline's best friend and then boyfriend and then husband. He is one of, gosh, I can't remember. It's not awful. I think it's six. Is I it can't six? remember. Five or six. He's also from a big family. And they're all kind of shaggy haired and they're all like always wrestling and kind of butting up against each other. And so the Skinner siblings start to call them the goats. Frogs. There are a lot of frogs in this book. <laughs> His love of frogs, his love of kind of the natural world starts at the pond because that's where he first kind of starts to study these bullfrogs and the tree frogs that live around the perimeter of the pond. And then he goes on to become a biologist and to study Panamanian tree frogs later in his life. A lot of people in the natural sciences believe frogs are kind of an indicator, a harbinger of what happens to ecosystems, but he doesn't quite see how frogs affect his own life (laughs) (laughs) and what they're harbingers for. Yeah, yeah. He's he's, he's definitely got his nose pressed to the glass. He's not looking for metaphors. (laughs) Also at this time, Joe gets into baseball. Mm-hmm. And it quickly becomes kind of like a an anchoring factor for him. Yeah. He can swing a poker, now a baseball bat, yes, and not yes. get in trouble for it. 
Yeah, he's a little bit of a baseball prodigy. And it becomes really important for the whole family. And they all kind of unite around his baseball career in a way that I think often happens in families with a particularly gifted athlete. And so they go to all his games and they travel with him and kind of anoints him as this charmed kid. And he's he's very charming and he's very good looking and he's, you know, the star athlete. And so people like him. People are attracted to him and they kind of let him get away with what they probably shouldn't let him get away with. He, there are two different standards of behavior, even in the household. Yes, yes, exactly. It happens both at home and when he's out in the outside world. Again, I think this happens a lot where you have these kind of charmed kids who the popular kids in school and the popular athletes who can kind of get bad grades and mess up and someone's always kind of cleaning up after them. It's actually in the long run, I don't think doing that individual that many favors. (laughs) You know, it's really setting them up to not take responsibility for their own life. I mean, there's part of Joe that I think, even though he is, he's very gifted and he works hard at it. When he's in high school, he doesn't work that hard at it when he, after he gets the scholarship and goes away to college. But there's a part of him that feels like he hasn't really earned his success, that everything has been sort of handed to him. That really messes with his sense of self. And the differential in treatment at home isn't necessarily based on his success, but his gender. Yeah. I have a daughter and two sons, and I'm very careful to not have a double standard because I think that certainly in the 80s, there was definitely a double standard in kind of what was expected of girls and what was expected of boys and kind of what you could get away with. And even though Noni is this declared feminist, and yet her feminism is focused solely on the girls. You know, she's so concerned with the sacrifices that they might be called to make in the name of family over profession or over achievement. And she's so worried about them that she just kind of forgets about Joe. And she assumes that he's going to, and I think she even says this at one point, that he's going to sail through life because everyone wants him to succeed. And so she doesn't really need to worry about him, which was not the right approach to take with Joe because he needed to become a feminist too. And even though he has three sisters, he doesn't really get it, which then has some negative repercussions for him professionally later in the book. And it seems quite a few of the characters in the book are defining themselves in reaction Mm -hmm. as opposed to finding what they naturally gravitate toward. Hmm. It's always react to some circumstance that's happened in their life. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. I have not heard that before, but now that I think about it, yeah. Maybe because, you know, when the, the first big happening in their life was so out of their control, you know, when their dad died and Noni went into her depression, perhaps that's, they kind of feel like that's the way they have to live. They have to be sort of defensive and, and reacting against against things. And you'll see in their later lives how it doesn't always serve them well. No, it does not. There's also a boy in the neighborhood named Ace, and he's, oh. he's a little bit reckless and a lot pugnacious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ace was my kind of my antagonist, my bad kid. 
I mean, I feel a little bad for Ace. You know, he had everything. He grew up with in a very wealthy family, but his parents just didn't really like him very much. And he, as a result, doesn't really like himself very much. He really looks up to Joe, but he encourages Joe's more negative characteristics, personality traits, and that's not a good thing for Joe. He does not need that influence in his life. (laughs) Appropriate love. Fiona is a reader throughout Mm -hmm. her life, reading books way ahead of her grade schedule. Yeah. yeah. But in her college career and early adulthood, she really doesn't have a direction. She's not driven like her other siblings are. But the title of the book comes from her blog which is called The Last Romantic. And it seems like it has some inspiration with Anka Radakovich and Candace Bushnell and people like that. Yeah, yeah. I did quite a bit of research into 90s sex blogs, and there were a lot of them. (laughs) You know, the golden age of blogging. And so Fiona, you know, each of these characters is kind of investigating love in their own way. And for Fiona, at least as a young woman, she's really investigating it romantically, sexually. And that seemed, you know, something that as a writer and as an artist, she would do. Yeah. The young Fiona was a little bit of a a wild child. (laughs) She's got a lot to look back on at 102. Yeah, she does, for sure. And poor number 23. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I have had some emails about that, too. (gasps) Shock. You know, shocking. The numbers in some of those sex blogs were were actually quite a bit higher. So, <laughs> <laughs> I went on your website and saw that you also offer professional manuscript consultation. Yes. What, what is that process like for you in working um, with people? It kind of depends on what the writer is looking for and what they need. But usually, I just start with a phone conversation or in person if they're local see where they're at with whatever writing project they're working on and what they need from me. I mean, it ranges from everything from just talking about plot development and character development to really hands-on editing and reviewing a full manuscript and editing it. I've been doing less of that now that I'm, you know, been traveling a lot. I really enjoy it. I mean, I'm a self-taught writer. I don't have an MFA. I was not an English major in college. And I always say that I I just kind of write from the seat of my pants. Like, I just write what I like to read. And I think I bring a slightly different perspective than a lot of other writing teachers who maybe have more kind of formal training. Do you find a lot of your clients are in a similar situation? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think also if you haven't gone through an MFA program and you want to write, it's pretty daunting because it seems like this closed community in this closed industry. You know, publishing is very mysterious. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be a closed community. And it shouldn't be. I mean, the more people whose voices get out there, the better. And I think we are seeing, you know, a lot more diversity in in work that's being published. But if you have a story to tell, tell it. (laughs) And also in your former career as an attorney going through law school, I mean, you had to write a lot in that process. Yeah, that was what drew me to law in the first place, actually, because I didn't think being a writer was a really uh, achievable career goal or a valid career goal. I always thought that I would do my real job until I retired and then I would write. 
I was a junior litigator in New York and then in the London office of my law firm. And I did something called international arbitration, which is dispute resolution, usually between two big companies or a government and a company. And that was basically what I did was write and research. You know, I love to do that and write persuasive documents, which is not all that different than fiction writing. You know, as a lawyer, I had to deal with those pesky facts. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly more fun to make stuff up. Uh, but, but you know, you can kind of, particularly with arbitration where there aren't the kinds of court rules that you have to adhere to in litigation, there is room for creativity in how you present a narrative and how you, you know, frame the story of your client's case. And your client is your protagonist and the opposing side is your antagonist. And there are definite similarities. But thank you for not going down the legal thriller route. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, who knows? Maybe. There is a lawyer. My first book has a lawyer protagonist or one of my main characters is is a junior lawyer. There are a lot of lawyers turned writers. And I get emails from people all the time. How did you do it? (laughs) How did you make the jump? How can I get out of the situation I've gotten myself into? I think it's one of those professions, too, where, like, the kind of idea of what being a lawyer is is very, very different than the actual day-to-day working as a lawyer. And I I think people get a little bit disillusioned. I was lucky. I worked as a runner for a law firm after college. And I said, (laughs) oh, I don't want to be around these people all day. Yeah, yeah. I think the best, before you go to law school, work in a law firm, work as a paralegal or something, and just see really what it's like. And then you can spend your money elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So is there another book in the works right now? Oh, yeah, there sure is. I am working on my third novel. It's called Community Board, and it is about a small town. I don't know how much to say about it because it's still very much work in progress. Then, then why, but... <laughs> don't we, why don't we leave it at that? <laughs> okay. I know a lot of writers are not prone to talking about their yeah. works in progress. So. Yeah. It's been really fun to work on and it's totally different than The Last Romantics. I'm trying to make it funny <laughs> and I'm giggling a lot as I write. So I'm hoping that others will giggle as they read. But it's just a totally different kind of book than anything I've written before or tried to write. So it's been fun to work on. Have you had any early readers look at the jokes yet? No. In fact, I was supposed to do a manuscript exchange with a friend right before the holidays, and she gave me hers. And I was like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. (laughs) Once I get back to Seattle and stop traveling, I'm going to give her the manuscript and see what she says. (laughs) Hopefully in a couple years time, maybe? Yes. Yes. Fingers crossed. Well, Tara, I want to thank you so much for coming by today. It's been very much a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Tara Conklin is the author of The Last Romantics, which is now on paperback from William Morrow. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. 
you are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.